Welcome to a new episode on Hamburger Generation, Jeel Al Hamburger. Our storyteller today is Jamal, who has grown up in Syria in the 80s and 90s. Listen in as he recounts his early life and how he found himself taking the worst and best decision of his life by moving to Canada. I hope you enjoy his stories. Um, I'm going to tell you a bit about myself, although I don't know why you would want to listen, but hey, you got me here. Um, <laughs> so I was not born in Syria, but I lived in Syria as of seven years old. Where were you born? I was born in Germany. Okay. I always wanted to do something with my life. I always wanted to go into academia. I, I was always a bookworm. I loved reading and discussing politics. It was always in our household. I was, I was called Jamal because my uncle was a Nasserist. I'm not a Nasserist myself, but this is a family history, an heirloom. So anyways, uh, I was always into reading political books and doing things. But I was raised... So I was raised in a liberal kind of family. Um, okay, let me tell you a bit about 1980s Syria. Not a happy place. Not a happy place at all. So politically, it was, it was, it was stifling. Um, it's not a place where you want to grow up. Uh, you didn't have any freedom of speech. You didn't have any freedom to do anything. And Damascene society at the time was a little more conservative than it is right now. Um, and by conservative, I don't mean religious. I mean like customs and, you know, family habits and stuff like that. So if you grew up and you were a little different, then you were always viewed, you know, askance, like, Why are you different? Hmm. Uh, scrutiny. And mind you, I'm a guy. I'm a boy, right? Hmm. I'm not a girl. Like Girls had it much tougher. But even as a boy in a male-dominated society, I was always under scrutiny because I dressed different, because I heard I didn't listen to the to the same music everybody heard. I read different books. I had different ideas, right? What were they reading and what were you reading? So some of them were not reading, period. <laughs> At all. Period. <laughs> yeah. Some of them were just reading, you know, every, you know, every, you know magazines and like trivia. I okay. mean, the equivalent of, you know, following i think influencers these days yeah, reading yeah, yeah, yeah. reading yeah, like about what, like you know like what kim kardashian had right kim kardashian and what have you yeah. right so it's the equivalent of that but in print form magazines if you remember that in the same language you are basically following the influencers who got canceled by exactly. society exactly. like why are you following these <laughs> this is cancel culture to me. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to play the metaphor, <laughs> then let's play it right. <laughs> so the thing is, um, I always felt that um, there was someone always watching what I would do, what I would do and always disapproving. Okay, but who are, who are these people that are disapproving? And how old are you? Well, how old are you? Exactly. And what oh, stage okay. of your life so, is this beginning? 
I'm born 1972, represent. <laughs> um, so I'm going to turn 50 this August. I grew up in the 1980s, basically became a young man, an adult young man in the 1990s. Okay. Ever since I woke up to this world, we had one president, right? And this president was quite, you know, uh, a controlling, you know, dictator. Let's mm-hmm. put it this way. And it showed in like every aspect of our lives. Again, as I was telling you, we had restrictions. We couldn't speak freely. Okay. I'm going to tell you a story in between brackets just to highlight this. Okay. So Hafez al-Assad died in on June the 10th, 2000. I remember the day. I remember the hour. I remember the exact place where I was when I heard about his death. And there is not a Syrian that was alive and awake in that in that period of time, who was older than, like, say, 10, who does not remember even to the exact detail of what they were wearing at the time when they heard the news. Why? Because it was, it was as if a god had died. Because this guy controlled our, all our lives, and he was all over the TV news. He was all over, like, his images were plastered everywhere. It's like Big Brother in 1984, literally and there was this kind of feeling of helplessness but also this kind of fatalism i guess he's always going to live forever and he told us as much he was saying one of one of the slogans was ilal abad ilal abad ya hafiz al asad we said it at school we said it at you know public public displays everyone said it it was all over the tv so we really kind of internalized this idea that this guy's going to fucking live forever right <laughs> and then he died so it was a big deal right it was like the big brother had died anyways at that time i was um in damascus and i heard that piece of news and it changed my life i moved to canada in 2008 and i was sitting with a friend of mine a very dear friend who's much older than i was he was my landlord and my friend. We we were, you know, having an evening in Montreal, sipping a glass of wine, talking about cinema, cinema in Syria, right? And my argument at the time to him was that there was cinema in Syria had receded. So the production of movies and films had receded sometime in the 1980s. And the thesis of mine was there's a reason for that. A couple of reasons. A, the advent of VHS. So, you know, People didn't go out to the movies as many, as much anymore because mm-hmm. it was more convenient. Watch, you know, popping a video and watching it in your in the comfort of your home. And then, second, the reason, also another reason for why people wouldn't go out was that at the time we had Juan Muslimin, and it was like there was a kind of like a low intensity civil war happening on the streets. So there were a lot of muhabarat, a lot of police, a lot of army on the streets. Ooh, I didn't know that. Right. Public places became dangerous to frequent. So a lot of people, because movie going was a, was a family affair, right? So a lot of families would rather stay home and pop a video again, right? Mm. And I was just about to explain that thesis to a friend in 2009 on a Sunday, August Sunday afternoon, well, late afternoon, early evening, over a glass of wine. I'm discussing fucking movies, right? In Montreal, 13,000 kilometers away from Damascus. I know I'm not Muhabarat. I checked. 
and I know he's not Mukhabarat, I also checked. <laughs> right? So we're talking, and I'm speaking to him, and I'm saying, well, you know, during the time of Hafiz al-Assad, and then I went silent for like 20 seconds, and I looked at him, and I was like, fuck this. He's been dead for nine years. I'm 13,000 kilometers away. I'm discussing fucking movies, and I still cannot speak his name out loud. Yeah. That's how scared we were. That's how scared we were. That's crazy. <laughs> right? It it's just like I'm I'm having I'm having goosebumps right now remembering this. Because this is this is this is really disgusting, the mm. amount of fear that you have. It's in your core. Right? Yeah. Right? And it stays. Mm. It's like kind of like a second instinct that you have. And I resolved at that point in time, I will never, ever fucking let my kids live through this. Mm. Ever. There's absolutely nothing more disgusting than being this scared. Mm. Now, people will tell you all these stories about how Syria was okay, it was an independent country, you know, it had industry, blah, 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 fucking blah. You've not walked in my shoes, you've not walked in every Syrian's shoes who are scared shitless. Every single fucking corner. The walls have ears. We lived that. Mm-hmm. Anyways. I've always wanted to study politics, but I never could. And I was always, again, as, a, as, as an individual, I never fe- felt that I belonged enough, like, socially. It was a struggle for me to fit in. Like, when you're in your 20s, it's always a struggle because you're finding out who you are, et cetera, et cetera. And then top that with the other alienation, which is you really don't feel that you belong to that culture that much because you want to be a little more liberal. You want to be a little more exposed. You want to be a little more westernized. Even when I spoke English, people used to you know, like look as if I was a spy or something at certain times. Not everywhere, but you know. So I was always on my tippy toes. And I was speaking to a friend of mine way way past that like in 2016 and he he just asked me he just asked me how are you how are you doing Hmm. and all the floodgates opened right i told him listen you know what for the first time in my life i don't feel i'm scared and i don't feel that i'm judged and i don't feel angry because it's kind of like when you know karate and you're, you know, trained in self-defense, and you're walking downtown Chicago, for example, in the in the middle of the night. You're always edgy. You're on edge, yeah, for sure. You, you know, and it take it like it, it's it's that energy. It keeps you, you know, adrenaline. stressed and adrenaline, but it also drains you. You arrive, you haven't done anything, but you arrive at home and you're drained just because you're on alert and you know you're ready for that knife to come and for you to fight, right? Mm-hmm. And that happening to me all day long, all over years, is just, I I realized how fatigued I was. And when did you realize, though? After I left. Hmm. It just got to a level where it was untenable. If you were talking to me about anything in Syria, I was always quick to get, you know, you know. I'm not saying this is a, a generalized experience, I know some people have it, 
the other problem is I don't think people are as are you know articulate or able to like take a step outside themselves and see themselves from outside and kind of analyze it and like put a name to it. Also, not everyone is uh, different, right, from the crowd around them. Kind of like the experience that you went through. You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. There are differences. Like there are shades of of how different you are. There are shades of how you know alternative your lifestyle is. Yeah. But there are lots of people who just wanted to be themselves and couldn't. Mm-hmm. Like even if the difference you're talking about is I don't want to wear a hijab um, or I don't want to get married right now. I want to work. No, you're a girl. This is what you need to do. Stop this fucking about, you know, go get married. This happens. This happens too many times around us. And we've been socialized into normalizing this. We don't question things, right? I used to question these things like at a very basic, sometimes very naive level at the beginning and then even a little more complex, but always cautious because you don't want to rock the boat too hard. Mm-hmm. There's an amount of fight that you can't really put up if you, you know, everybody around you is doing thing a thing or everybody around you holds a certain conviction or everybody around you polices you. I'm talking about social policing here. I'm not talking about like police police, right? You know, because these norms and these habits and these like social customs, let's put it, we take them as if they were like, they're natural. They're not natural. They're socialized and then they're policed. When your mom comes and tells you, hey, that's not natural. That's her policing you. You can't say this in front of X. Don't tell this to your dad. Don't tell your dad he's wrong. You know, it gets to another point. That like, I, I, I hope you weren't doing that when you were growing up. But like, I know I, like, I have people from my, my, the other side of my family who kiss their dad's hands. It's a nice gesture. I get it. It's a sign of respect. And I'm not saying it's it's haram or shouldn't happen, but it's not something that comes naturally. It's something that you see, you emulate, or you're forced to emulate until it becomes a habit and you no longer have to be forced, right? And it's this that I used to rebel against. I used to ask these questions. More, more often than not, I used to get slapped on my wrist, like sometimes literally so. Mm-hmm by teachers, by people around me, by people who were like, look at me like, what the fuck? Like, as if I, I came from Mars or, you know, I was questioning God's existence or something. If I just said, why are you saying this? Or why are you doing that? It's silly. Everything is, you just accept things as they are. And then on top of this, again, social kind of stigmatization, comes the political system which is reinforcing this kind of shut up and put up kind of thing and if you can't accept things for what they are or you can't numb your brain enough to just go ahead and be a zombie you can imagine how tiresome this is it's a lot so i only got out of this when i was 40 right it took me a while Mm. That's like your whole life. Yeah, well, almost. Like for, for 80% of my life. Yes, four out of five, to be exact. Yeah, not fun. 
So you've only been free for 10 years. Well, you, have you seen The Matrix? Like the good oh, yeah. one, the first one. The first one, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. the rest is just... Yes, uh, agreed. I mean, they're good, but they're not as no, mind, no, no, no. you know, bending or yeah. life-changing. Yeah. I'm kind of like Neo when the things <laughs> popped off his... Right? At, at age 40? That's when the... Actually, I'm like Neo when Morpheus gets him when... You remember that, bl- you know... Uh, white screen thing when he gets the TV set, the old TV set, and he shows him the world as it is. Uh-huh. He tells him the story, and he kind of his mind rebels against it. And mm. but he's that's the slap that wakens him, right? At age forty, that that's what happened to me. There was no Morpheus, and I didn't look as cool as Keanu Reeves. <laughs> didn't have hair. Didn't dodge bullets. Actually, it's nothing like that movie. What am I talking about? <laughs> But the other thing is that I realized also one of the things that happened to me at age 40 is and then the Matrix just came back to me because I watched it like 10 years earlier. But the Matrix came back as a reference and that's why I like the movie because it's not only, you know, great action and, you know, beautiful special effects. It's also a lot of philosophical ideas. Oh, 100%. Right. So one of the things that I liked about the Matrix was the the bit where where he gets to go see uh, the oracle, mm-hmm. oh, and yeah. over the door there's a sign that says uh. "noscete ipsum" in Latin. "Noscete ipsum" in Latin means "know thyself," and that's when it came all flooding back to me. And I was like, you know what? I have self awareness for the very first fucking time in my life. I'm 40 for Christ's sakes, right? I have two kids. I'm married. I used to manage companies and I never actually knew who I was on the inside. I never faced myself and knew who I was really, really, really without fearing something. And it was just this, like all of it came flooding in, like the depression of having left Syria, losing everything, my friends, my house, my my work, my money, uh, arriving in a new country that I had no inroads to. I didn't have enough experience to get into jobs. My experiences in Syria counted for nothing. You know, what would I do? All of this. And then on top of it is this moment of self-enlightenment coming over. And it was like, it, it was, it was a, it was a tornado. Mm. <laughs> a lot of emotions. Mm. Mm. Somehow I survived it, but... Why did it take you so long until you were 40 to leave Syria? Why not before? Well, partially because I was like... What, what's, his, what's his name? The other guy who doesn't want to leave the Matrix. Uh, the, he was part of He's Morpheus' like the team. the bad guy. The bad guy, right? The traitor, the backstabber. Yeah, Joe Pantoliano is the name of the actor. I can't remember what the, what the character's name is right we now. We forgive you. Right, but you remember you remember that bit when he says, "I know that this is not a stake, yes, but yes, I'm yes, yes. I'm choosing to believe that it's succulent, and you know, you partially become so invested in 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 the matrix because it you feel the fear of leaving it would be too dangerous, and you don't know what's out there, and living in the matrix for too long, the matrix." makes you feel small and insignificant and decimates your self-confidence. So instead of somebody from outside telling you you're not worthy, you start telling yourself you're not worthy. 
what am I going to do if I go outside and like, you know, seek, seek pastures anew? I'm going to fail because who am I? Right. And I'm 40 and I have kids and blah, blah, blah. So you start giving yourself these reasons mm-hmm. for fucking yourself up mm-hmm. even further and getting stuck. And then when you're stuck, you say, oh, fuck, I'm stuck. And like, what can I do about it? And you're in that catch 22 situation where the only thing to break the logjam is for you to stop doing the silly thing to yourself and clipping your own wings, shooting yourself in your foot. Mm. So to answer you, I was shooting myself in the foot. I hated what I had. I wanted what I didn't, but I was too afraid to get to it because living in that type of social but also political situation that basically comes and stifles your individualism stamps out your free will and tries to make you conform. Mm -hmm. And all of these happen to really, really damage your self-esteem and your self-confidence and, you know, your, your knowledge of yourself, your self-awareness. You had to have an, what you, what do you, what we call an ex, um, well, an external shock. You needed something to jolt you out of, I was just going to say, what was the catalyst for you to leave? Syria and the revolution that happened and then the situation that escalated into a civil war basically pushed me out of the country. And then pushing me out of the country, I had that moment of forced awakening. And there were people, there are three things that you had to do. And I've seen all three things happen with people around me because I'm not the only one who had that, obviously. So... One is to go through the, you know, really hard and rocky, but eventually um, gainful and life-saving, life-affirming experience of enlightenment and knowing yourself and reinventing yourself if you can. So I'm talking about all the people who had to leave the country after the, after the, the revolution and the civil war. The second thing that, that, the second option that you have is just to, you know, Say no, I'm not worthy, and going back to the to the old model. Only you're no longer in Syria, mm-hmm. and then all you're doing is lamenting your bad luck and asking the world to look at you. You're victimizing yourself, basically. Why me? Why me? Why me? Oh, world, you are all responsible for my misery. I will never forgive everyone and everything. You get me out of my misery, and everything and anything that you do is never going to be enough. And it's this. This vortex of, yeah, right, victimization and and it, it eats you up inside. You're never satisfied, and you never get where you want. And even if you get what you want, you won't. You're you're just gonna devour it with all that pain and misery, self inflicted mostly. The third is to say <laughs> basically to not give a fuck. I know a lot of people who went into like these uh, drug binges. Or this kind of like self-isolation. Some people went into like weird, exotic, and by exotic I don't mean good, I mean weird, Hmm. types of religious belief. Where they would just basically, you know, go into like this kind of like, you know, vegetative state. Like monk-like kind of, but vegetative. Not even the monk, the good monk thing, right? And they're just numb, comfortably numb, uncomfortably actually numb, uh, you know. And it's just one of these three options. I haven't seen a fourth. 
and I chose out of all three I chose number First. one okay and I'm glad I did it transformed my life okay so you arrived in Canada Canada right in to take us through it so I left Damascus for the last time I didn't know it at the time on January 12th 2012 I left through Damascus airport before it closed down and I arrived in Montreal on a very shitty Montreal snow day it was <laughs> snowing like fuck it was 27 minus and I had to walk Layla and Samir my kids to school not fun but um yeah it was it was really harsh it was really hard I fell into a very deep depression. I didn't realize it at the time, by the way. I thought I was functioning really normal. You know, I was doing okay, blah, 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 blah. We had packed light because we thought, there's no fucking way this guy's going to survive mm. this. There's, there's no we'll way. We'll be back. There's <laughs> no way. I mean, I I'll be back know. in like six months tops a year. Because we know he's a criminal. We know what he's capable of, but there's absolutely no way that they're going to let him get away with it. So we were thinking, guaranteed he's not going to sur survive this. Because mm -hmm. there are limits to what he can do. Like few months tops. So I packed stuff that I didn't need. I was going to, I, I took all my throwaway clothes, basically. Because I'm going to wear these, tear these, throw them to garbage, buy new clothes when I'm going back. And, you know, mm -hmm. I had... $5,000 on me. And that's all I had. And these $5,000 represented the money that I'm going to pay the four tickets for us to return to Syria. Oh, wow. And that's all the money I had. Um, what were you going to do in between? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> find, a, find a temp job. Because it's all temp, right? This is us just, you know, seeking shelter. I was, I, I was, I'm, I'm, to you know I, I don't know if it's obvious not a fan of Assad not a fan of the regime uh, and I was like everybody else who was against the regime uh, in a situation where I was you know not guaranteed my safety yeah because I had a family and I had an out I had my immigration to Canada which I didn't want to go to but I had that and I I had to take a responsible decision for my family. Um, so Rana, my wife and I, we spoke about this and she said, dude, you know, you need to take care of the family, right? And you can't do this in Syria. And I don't want to be around with you, your ass being arrested and me having absolutely nothing yeah. to save you with, right? Yeah. So that's what made us, you know, go. And for six months afterwards, so there's a seven time, uh, seven hour, seven hour time difference between Montreal and Damascus. So seven, seven hours later. Yeah. I was sleeping in Montreal, Damascus time, and I was waking in Montreal, Damascus time. What were you doing? 
we were following the news all the time. We were on Facebook because we're old farts, as mm. I told you. <laughs> Facebook. Right. That thing, right? <laughs> By the way, Hamburger Generation is available on Facebook. And if anyone wants to follow us, we're there. If there's any old people listening. Oh, I, I hope there are old people listening to this because <laughs> this is good shit. <laughs> this is good shit. Um, and to anyone who's listening... Isra is much better looking than Jamil. But, uh, <laughs> but I digress. I digress. I digress. It comes without saying. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, we were, we were following all the, like, all these people, you know, posting these, these immediate, like, news, mm. you know, on Facebook, etc. And you guys were ready. You're, like, on we the We were ready, but seat. also we were worried about our parents. We were worried about our friends yeah. who were still back there. We're communicating with people, you know, like checking in on them. And we were just basically still living on Damascus clock until in July 2012, an assassination happened. Basically, a, a localized uh, explosive device, very tiny, very targeted inside the most inner sanctum of the regime's security apparatus. Where there was a there was um, a khaliyat azmi. What is that? Uh, it's like it's like crisis management group. Ah, uh, okay. It was okay. the in inside government crisis management group. So it was all the security chiefs, you know, the presidents, the current presidents, uh, uh, younger brother who's head of the uh, Republican Guard used to go there. His brother-in-law who is also part of the Muhabarat you know, the interior minister, the defense minister. So all the top honchos used to meet on a weekly basis inside a very secure room in a very secure building in a very secure area in Damascus. And all of a sudden, inside that most secure room, this inner sanctum, a couple of explosive devices blow up and they were so localized that they kill on impact in that space that people living in the surrounding buildings never heard a pop. So that's very, very mm. targeted, right? And that's it's like probably not. Stuff. It's probably not, you know, opposition, because the rest of everything that the opposition did in terms of like armed opposition, and I, I use the term very lightly, <laughs> they've had shitty performance all throughout. And then this anomalous thing the opposition did, like that was highly executed, etc. You know, so a lot of people suspected, I'm, I'm one of them, that it was mostly an inside job. Mm. This thing happened and then what, what was basically a large scale policing, so low, low intensity warfare, like urban warfare thing with police and muhabarat and some armed forces coming into you know neighborhoods killing people by guns you know making mass arrests etc cetera, etc cetera, turned into what you what you then later saw it was like aerial bombardment like long range long range even missiles and you know mass scale you know state declared war on population but then I realized that moment when this happened before the thing went into overdrive, I realized this is a this is just a different moment. What was possible before this, I don't think is possible afterwards. And what I considered as a temporary thing 
now almost turned into a very long-term, if not permanent thing. I might not be able to come back to Syria for a while, for a longer while, or forever. Mm. And just realizing this gutted me. Mm. Like my heart sank. And I was almost tectonic for a, for a while. Like I was a living, breathing zombie. Because everything was completely lost. And what I had in front of me was not what I wanted. It was not even remotely what I wanted. And then on top of that, I'm responsible for a family or co-responsible. I'm not a, I'm not one of those, you know, macho, I'm responsible. I carry the family on my shoulders, but I'm part of this and I have a responsibility, (laughs) right? And I, I don't know how am I, how am I going to fucking do this? And I'm 40 and I'm old. I was just immobilized. Took me a while, right? And to her credit, my, you know, my partner and my wife, she was like the one who was, you know, versatile and, you know, she kept us going for a while. Nice. Shout out. Shout out to Rana. Woo. So the thing it's is. women, man. It's all about women. Yeah, it's all about women. <laughs> Dude, you guys, you guys don't get the credit. Yeah, you you mean you women? Well, you women, you know. The other major thing that happened that I think is also something worth sharing is when I when I found myself in, in in Canada after that moment right after I realized that there was no going back I started working as a call center agent I had managed companies in Syria before like I came from upper management positions and your experience was like not worth anything in Canada so I applied for jobs you know I tried the whole gamut of things like jobs.com, you know, whatever, you know, all these job searches. I went to employment agencies for my CV round. I went even to a recruiter, like one of these headhunter types, you know. You were like a well uh, English well spoken English French, so in Montreal that's oh, really that's important. French. So I'm I'm bilingual. Of the French thing that you went to when you were 19. And I had oh, relevant yeah. experience. I I I'd worked I'd work with with I, I did work in the Middle East, but I'd worked in like with with uh, international outfits. Like I had relevant experience, right? Okay. At the time, it was not what they wanted. It's at least in in in, in Quebec. Quebec is a little harder to get jobs, and I was not thinking of moving to anywhere else in in Canada at the time. Anyways, so I I suffered with a dead end job, like minimal pay. I I was living in a half basement with. In a glorified bachelor's with two young kids, it was it was really depressing, right? Um, so I had this one friend from my Damascus days who also lived in Montreal, <sighs> and the one time of the month that I could afford to go out and have like a pizza and a and a beer with him, we were having our monthly pizza and a beer. And so, yeah, I drink, if, if you don't know. Ooh, controversial. Yeah, ooh, yeah, <laughs> uh, as if. Um, and he was asking me, how are you doing? And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, I'm, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm like, I feel stuck, I'm, you know. And he was like, dude, what the hell are you doing? This is a 
قال لي عن جد حمار قال لي اخي بكيبيك لحتى تحصل على جوب بدك كنيديان اكسبيرينس ولحتى تحصل على كنيديان اكسبيرينس بدك جوب فايتس ا كاتش 22 سيتويشن 100% يو كانت اسكيب ات ذا اذر اوت از فور يو تو جيت كنيديان كواليفيكيشنز which is what which is go and get yourself a degree go do something get a degree study you'll get like a full time admission and then you'll get like because you can't work full time you'll get a stipend from 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 the province you know you can work for like minimal hours and then all of that would probably help towards you know covering i mean you're getting minimal salary anyways so this is kind of like as as much if not a little better you think so yes i think so but i'm 40 years old he said what the fuck have you got to lose so i went to the two english-speaking campuses uh, in montreal mcgill and concordia mcgill told me to fuck right off <laughs> not their material So I went to Concordia and they said, um, yeah, well, I mean, you're older than the normal age for admittance and you've been out of study for more than 10 years. So you're risky. You might, if we give you a full-time admission, we're going to bump somebody else off and you have a high opportunity of not continuing your studies. So we're going to put you on a probation thing like we're going to you know provisionally accept you on a part-time basis if you score uh c plus or higher um on six um uh well i mean you know it's like 18 credits and every class is like three credits so like six classes mm. if you score c plus or higher then we will review it and you might be admitted so i was like okay what do i got to lose right So I went straight into it and I felt What did you study? Political science. And the reason I picked political science. So I'd, I'd done management before as my profession. I'd done marketing, business development. So I was thinking of studying marketing, but there were prerequisites. And since I came out of Syria, these pre prerequisites were never taught to us. I had them as professional experience, but I never had them academically. So I would have needed to go back and do a high school equivalency of sorts, which was out of the question. So I chose the path of minimal yeah, yeah, yeah. resistance and also something that I, like I was thinking I'm going to have to read these things. What would I usually read? And it was all political. So I thought of myself, political science is a good entrance. I can, I can go to law. I can switch degrees and go into marketing after a while by, you know, dodging the prerequisites or something. Anyways, It was just, every, everything was a convenience choice. And the first class was on a Friday, 7 to 9, January 9th, right? So I like a year in. Right? Uh, 2013. Montreal was really freaking cold. Like it was minus 22 or something. And it's 7 to 9, I have to remind you. And it's the second basement in a very damp, very dank, underlit auditorium. Seven, seven to nine a.m. or p.m.? P.m. Okay. And it was really damp and dank. And I was, I was really like, oh, my God, what have I done to myself, right? And then... Well, I can picture it. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then the professor opens her mouth. 
And she starts speaking a language that I'd always wanted to hear. Right? The language of international relations and like state versus state and institutions and all. <gasps> and I was hooked. The light bulb went up and never looked back. I aced two classes, A minuses, went back to my registrar, told her, you know, I scored A minus. You know, would you want to review that? And she went back and reviewed it. And like 40 minutes later, she calls me panicking. She said, we've just waived the the other courses. You're now admitted full time, but you need to register. You have only 72, hour, uh, 72 hours before registration is closed. So you do that right now. Go to your portal, et cetera, et cetera. And I managed. And then I went, like I did that online. I went to my to my boss and told him to fuck right off. I'm resigning, bitch. <laughs> Shit. And I never look back. And then what did you do? Like you were studying full time and then oh sorry. You're studying full time and the government was giving you Yes, a stipend. Okay. Cool. Well explain the stipend. And it's the same amount. Stipend as is, you were is, is kind of like it's not a salary. It's because it, a salary you have to work for. A stipend is like a, a salary that you don't actually have to work for. You do it because you're in a specific status of things, right? Okay. Okay. Um, and part of it is is a loan that you have to repay, and part of it is a bursary. So it's a non-returnable, non-refundable mm. amount. So it's not all free. Part of it is, and part of it isn't. But right? it was enough to sustain your family. Well, I mean, we had to resort to some very nifty uh, financial planning, which obviously, again, Rana takes credit for. Cause she's, shout out. Shout out to Rana. Because she's the financial propriety propriety you know person in charge but yeah we we had to resort to some you know very smart like grocery buying decisions we had to like you know we had to wait for coupons for like uh, you buy no name brand well no name when it's on when it's on sale so if if for example let's put it this way if carrefour the equivalent of Carrefour has rice on special. We go to Carrefour to buy rice and only rice. We buy sugar from, right. you know, grandiose, and then we go and so on, right? So we never bought every... We didn't go to a supermarket like we used to and just buy Nilly Willy and put in into the bag and that's it. No. So we would shop around because we needed... You'd the absolute best deal on everything. We couldn't afford otherwise. But we did that and... We actually managed to, to stay afloat and, and then some. So I finished my studies in uh, Montreal at Concordia. I uh, graduated with a major in political science and a minor in Israel studies. Whoa. I managed to get out of Concordia cum laude. Nice. 3.8 GPA, which was pretty good for an old fart. I think mm. that was good. Um, I applied to my master's degree uh, at four campuses, so Concordia, McGill, University of Ottawa, University of Toronto, got admissions from all four, and by the way, my proudest moment was to tell McGill to fuck right off. No, you <laughs> bastards. Anyways, I accepted U of T after consulting with Rana, after she said it was okay, because that entails a move yeah. of the entire family, right? And the master's degree was not funded. So I had to pay out of pocket. On top of moving, 
on top of losing part of our income because the money that comes for the kids, we get stipends for the kids as well, are less generous in Ontario than they are in Quebec. Mm. And then the cost of living in Ontario is 35 to 40% more. So we were pretty financially strained for a year. This seems a little counterproductive. Yes. But the upside of it is, the upshot is, I got admitted to my PhD program a year after because it's a one-year master's program. I graduated from that. And then it's a fully funded program. And then things started to even out a a bit more. Um, It's a five-year program, and I'm in my year four right now. I'm visiting Dubai because I'm doing my field work, um, working towards my thesis, which I'm hoping to hopefully... Uh, submit and defend next year. So around this time next year, um, I'm hoping to graduate my ass out when I'm 51. And I'm going to look for jobs, hopefully teaching, researching. Um, Yeah. So what I was going to say is the worst, single worst thing that happened to me was getting out of Syria. Turned out to be the single best thing that happened to me because of Canada. Because I was finally, A, free and secure. B, I was able, I was given an opportunity through a system that for all its faults, Canada is really not perfect. There are lots of things that are really brilliantly fucked up in Canada. And I can I can start complaining till the cows come home. But generally speaking, there's a minimal amount of decency and of human rights, but also of social and economic advantages that you get as a citizen that I was afforded that helped me recreate myself mm. and become what I always wanted to be, even at a later age. And that filled me with hope. That's nice. And that now is something that I take, I don't take it lightly. I'm no longer as angry as I used to be when I was in my 20s. My 20s were miserable, by the way. I I had a very, very bad, very bad coming of age. Right? I was always angry, afraid, feeling judged, on my tippy toes, as I was telling you. And now at age 50, almost, I feel hopeful. I feel things can happen. I feel that I'm doing something that is beneficial for me and that potentially has the possibility of being you know, beneficial for others if I can spread my knowledge and discuss things. And I'm trying to reach over out to people to like enlarge the discussion, to try and inject a new way of looking at things with the people I engage with. I'm trying to engage with people. I travel around. I speak to Syrians and non-Syrians alike. I try to spell the God, you know, spread the gospel of rational thinking of hope. Cause if I can do it and I'm not talented, I'm not that smart. I'm not that good looking either, but Hey, With all these disadvantages, 
I'm doing something with my life. And if I can do it, then anyone with half a talent or half a brain or half a good looks that, you know, they can do that too. And I want to be able to like use this example of mine to get people to, you know, thinking about things differently. And it's not this kind of like stupid, naive kind of like, you know, Instagram moment. Like hashtag blessed. Hashtag blessed, you know, or Osho's sayings or whatever. Right. No, no. This is for real, a real lived experience out of my own experience, which 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 had its very shitty parts. Somehow in this messy, incoherent, incongruous way comes like I'm hoping not an ending, but a second chapter that is not that bad. So when you're feeling despondent and things are not happening, don't just, you know, allow things to like life to, you know, run you over. Mm. Cause you never know when things change. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more episodes, you can always support us on Patreon and unlock exclusive stories. The link to our Patreon is in the description. You can also find us on Instagram where we post funny internet memes all the time. Thanks again, and we'll catch you on the flip side.